Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Word Processing. My name is Andrew and I'm on staff at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel along with Josiah and he's here with me in the room. We are going to be talking about another covenant this week, Josiah, because at Oak Ridge we've been going through a series on the biblical covenants. Last week we talked about Noah and this week we are talking about Abraham, Abraham, which is probably maybe a, a pretty well-known, I would think, covenant. We've all heard of the covenant. I know in you know kids' ministry it comes up, what is the promises to Abraham, things like that. But maybe remind us specifically again, what is this covenant and where is it found in scripture? So we're all on the same page. Yeah, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant that God cuts with Abram, who later becomes Abraham. And it is found in a section of scripture that spans 10 or 11 chapters, probably from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22. There's kind of a preamble that kind of predicts the covenant to come. And you go all the way to chapter 22 where the covenant is tested in a way. Mm-hmm. That Abraham's faith is tested near the end. And the epicenter of the covenant where it's actually the oath is sworn is in chapter 15. But the whole thing really needs to be taken as a unit to understand the covenant, I think, as a whole. And so God swears this three-pronged, or I called it three branches of one covenant, Mm -hmm. uh, where he promises Abram a land, a population or a descendants, a great nation from him, and then a blessing that would span the globe. And on Sunday, I called those location, population, and benediction. And they are all distinct, but cooperative in this single covenant. I love that you pointed out too, like we talked about with Noah last week, that God starts with a promise and then cuts the covenant to mm-hmm. really, again, show the distinction that not every promise is a covenant, but they are distinct things as well. For sure. And I just think it reminds us of God's patience and graciousness with people who are slow to believe. And Abraham's story is very relatable in that he is told things by God and he believes them. And you see things that he steps out and he's excited and he's faithful. And then... It wanes a bit and he struggles to believe and God comes back again. And I just love that when God promises something, that should be enough. Mm -hmm. In theory, that should be enough for us. God says, actually, just God speaking should be enough. But then he promises. And then for our sake, he cuts a covenant. And yeah, you're right. The distinction is important to notice, but I think it highlights God's patience and his grace. Mm -hmm. Now, talking about that distinction, you did, again, just mention the three different branches and you emphasized on Sunday as well as just a moment ago, that it's very important that although they work together in tandem, that we also keep them separate. And you did explain it a little bit on Sunday, but again, keep it in our minds. Why is it so important that we not conflate these things or just make a a, a random list of what God promises to Abraham? But why are these three things so distinct and why is that important? I think there's more at stake here than we often realize. Okay. And that may not have been clear on Sunday, particularly for us. Do you think that's because this is like, I don't know, for me, I think of this along with maybe probably Mosaic Covenant as being like this big Old Testament for a specific people group covenant, right? And so it's so easy to say, I am not an Israelite, Mm -hmm. so does this even apply to me at all? And so it's so easy to just get it all conflated. I think you're right. I think it is, how do we today relate to a covenant made primarily with Israel? And that will, you're right, be the case with the Mosaic Covenant as well. Like, how are we to understand and apply or live in, if that's even appropriate, Mm -hmm. this covenant? And when the New Testament comes along and actually speaks of us being sons of Abraham by faith, there is a risk of us, if we don't 
keep those branches distinct, just kind of understanding that the whole thing now belongs to us. Hmm. If we're sons of Abraham, then we inherit what is Abraham. That's what a son means. We are inheritors of what was given to him and what was given to him, but this covenant. So then you start thinking, okay, well, what about the land? Does that then mean that we are now inheritors through faith, inheritors of the land? Well, I don't know if that really makes sense. Or inheritors, are we part of this population? Well, I'm not actually from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So how does that all work? And the risk becomes we go back and instead of reading forward, we start reading backwards and redefining the contents of the oath. And this is where I'm concerned, is that now we start to call into question God's clarity and if God really meant what he said. So some Mm -hmm. people will say, okay, God promised the land, but now what he really means as we come to the New Testament, what he really means is the new heavens and new earth. So it's even better. It's like if you promise your kid, when you turn 16, I'm going to buy you a $1,000 car, your first car, a beater. I'm going to buy it for you. That's my promise to you. And then they turn 16 and you get them a, a Porsche. You know, it's the same promise, but it's just better. So what are we complaining about? He promised this land, but now it's better. But I would just say that's actually not what's happening. Mm-hmm. What's happening is me saying to my son, I will buy you when you're 16, your first car. And then when he turns 16, giving him an Uber pass and saying, now you have transportation, but you got to share it with a bunch of people. There's no way when that promise which was originally made, my child thought this could totally be an Uber pass. I'm mm-hmm. going to share this like or yeah. a bus pass or something like that. It's not yeah. what they thought. So it's not the same as expanding the contents of the oath. It's changing it. It's mm-hmm. changing the recipients of it. So I think a lot is at stake when we don't understand these branches correctly. Understand that we as you and I are Gentiles. We are not from the line of, of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. So we are not part of that population through whom God is going to bring that global blessing. But we do are recipients of that blessing, are we not? Like sure, Christ came to world. save the world. And so just to understand that As sons of Abraham through faith, we inherit that third branch. And those second two branches, because God means what he says, still have to come to pass Mm -hmm. with the people to whom he promised it. So that's what I think is at stake. It's the clarity and the reliability and the trustworthiness of God himself. Because if we're able to change those things, then what's to stop us changing any of of God's other promises, his other covenants, and saying, actually, it never actually meant the actual physical land of Canaan. It's just a spiritualized version of that. And I didn't mean the nation of Israel. I meant a people for myself, a new people called out, maybe the church, right? Mm-hmm. We are now the true Israel, the real Israel. That, sure. That's what was intended the whole time. We just didn't know that. Well, that that makes God out to be a liar. Mm-hmm. He said something knowing that Abraham didn't understand it, yeah. and then he's going to change it later on. Especially with God's omniscience in there, right? Yes. Like if God knows exactly what he's going to do and then he that seems really sly at the very least, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Dishonest at, at worst, right? For sure. And so we want to exercise our ability to read the text well. We read from Genesis through Revelation. What comes later in the New Testament, etc., expands and elucidates and all of that stuff to what was promised, but it never changes what was promised. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need, especially, especially in a covenant where the clarity of the oath is all important. And I think when we read the Abrahamic covenant, it's very clear. How many times did he say, the land, the land, the land, this land, this land, this is the land I'm going to give to you. And then if you move beyond Genesis 22, into Exodus, into Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, into the prophets, into the Psalms, the land is a huge deal. And every Israelite knew exactly what was being talked about. Now we come to the New Testament, we change that to mean something different. Again, you nailed it in saying that if we can't trust him with the clarity of what he said then in that covenant, 
then what about the new covenant? What about the promise of eternal life? Maybe that's just actually means while we're here on earth, or maybe that's just hope that we have that's not actually legitimate. Like you could change that any way you want to just, you know, quote unquote, expand it or whatever, when really what it's doing is changing it. So we should have no hope of anything if God can just change his promises. Yeah. And people will say, well, that's just how you read the Bible. Other people read it differently. I would say, no, no, that's how the Bible reads itself. And if we want to learn how to read the Bible properly, why don't we take cues from the Bible itself? If you go through Genesis to Revelation and every single time God speaks in such a way as he demands a response, every single time what is expected and what actually happens in the text is the hearers do what God said. Yeah. It means it's clear. There's It's speech act. Like there's an intention and it's carried out. So it actually interprets itself that way. Or you look at how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. Very clear. So why would we change that? Just because it is more fitting to us or whatever. Easier to understand, perhaps. You know, when Paul talks about being grafted into the family of Abraham, that can maybe get confusing, I guess. Sure. Less confusing if we understand the covenant. Totally. (laughs) It's just that we're very ignorant in the Old Testament. And so a lot of our New Testament understanding is based on a very weak understanding of the covenants on top of which it sits. And so I am praying that this jaunt through the covenants will help us to even understand the New Testament a little bit better. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, one thing you just alluded to a moment ago that I've always found really interesting about this covenant specifically is, as we kind of talked about, the biblical real estate that it's given to it. This whole story, I mean, 10 chapters, and they're not short chapters either. Like the chapters in Genesis are relatively lengthy. And what I see there is this big contrast between we have, you know, God making these promises and then you have Abraham and Sarah, you know, trusting a bit, but then laughing at them, trying to, you know, believing the promise, but not so much because they want to take it in their own hands. Oh, he must have meant this. I guess I'll take this. And, you know, Sarah's uh, servant girl, I'll take her instead. And ultimately, though, as you talked about on Sunday and just a moment ago, at the end, we see Abraham demonstrating faith in the promises of God and it being counted to him as righteousness, which is a huge biblical theme that's so important that we understand moving forward through the entire rest of scripture, really. I really feel like this emphasizes, I guess, the messiness of sinful humanity and yet how stable and trustworthy God is in the midst of all that. Mm -hmm. Again, this is one of those things like last week. I don't really have a question here as much as just it's fascinating to me. I wonder if there's more here that we can be chewing on. Oh, of course there is. Yeah. And you talk about it covers a lot of biblical real estate, and that's true. It's actually even more than what we talked about on Sunday because really it's Genesis 12 through Genesis 50 is the real estate. It That is the patriarchs. This is because later on in Genesis 26, Genesis 28, God will come and reiterate the same covenant to yep. Isaac and then Jacob. And in Genesis 15, which we did read, God says, your people are going to be in a land that's not theirs. Mm-hmm. They're going to be enslaved. So by the time you get to the end of Genesis, that's where they are. And so really, it is a huge amount of real estate dedicated to the patriarchs and the development of this population moving toward this location through which the blessing will come, the benediction. So yeah, you're right. And we should pay attention to that. There's a lot of biblical real estate there for a reason. Maybe it's important. Maybe mm-hmm. we should understand yeah. it. And you're exactly right. Like The messiness is hard to miss. And it's not just siloed into the Abraham narrative. Man, Jacob is a mess. He's a monster at times. Yeah. Uh, Isaac, there's all sorts of messiness. Joseph and that whole narrative, which we went through a number of years ago as well. God is so faithful. And I don't want to be too guilty of narcissism, we call it, reading ourselves into the text. But I can't read the accounts of the patriarchs without at least seeing parallels to my own life. 
God's faithfulness to me in spite of my thoughtlessness, my rebellion, my lack of gratitude, all these things that I see in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and everyone around them, I understand. And so I really lean on the faithfulness of God, even when I'm not faithful or lack faith. And I mean, as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, this kind of theme of salvation, what we see is, again, another deeply flawed human being who is counted as righteous because of God's faithfulness and his faith in God's promise, right? So even though he doubts at times, even though he laughs in God's face at times, even though he, you know, misunderstands at times or goes his own way at times, he ultimately demonstrates faith in God's promises. And that is what is counted as righteous. Mm. And so it shows, I think, and this reminded that we're in good company, I guess, when we struggle, that when we don't always believe the first time or that when we struggle to understand what God's doing, we struggle to imagine how he could be working all things out for good of those who love him or any of the things that we wrestle with, you know, what's important there? It's faith in the promises of God. Yeah. And yeah, you bring up a, a good point that I did not emphasize clear enough on Sunday. And I should now. God's people, whether in Genesis 12 or in our day today, are saved the same way. Abraham's an example of that. They're saved by grace through faith in the promises of God. Now, the content of that promise changes through the history of Revelation. Of course. Abraham had no idea of a crucified and risen Messiah. He knew someone was coming, Genesis 3.15, someone to crush the head of the serpent. He knew a child of promise was going to come and bring blessing. And whatever was revealed to him, he said, I believe you, Lord. I trust you. I'm putting faith in what you revealed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, for us today, more has been revealed, Hebrews chapter 1. The Son is the perfect revelation. And so we are responsible for more now than Abraham was, in a way. I can't just believe that a son of promise is going to come and be saved. You know, I have to believe in Christ, who is the fulfillment of the promises of God. But it's still by grace, through faith, and the promises of God for us. It's in the personal work of Christ. So I just wanted to make that clear. that, and, And the sins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were washed away, Uh, from which he was declared righteous, are still paid for by Christ, Mm -hmm. retroactively. Everyone's saved by Christ. It's just in which direction the grace flows from the cross. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad that you clarified that because I think it's an important piece that, you know, people ask all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to Old Testament figures, you just said we're we're pretty illiterate when it comes to the Old Testament sometimes. How does Jesus factor into the Old Testament, especially when we are not doing, you know, the thing that some people do, which is try and find Jesus in every single passage. We're not saying that you know, Genesis 12 to 22 is about Jesus. What you talked about is how Jesus will ultimately fulfill or uh, fit into that that covenant in the future that we now know of, right? And, yeah, we could say that the Old Testament anticipates him. Jesus is the culmination, particularly when you look at the biblical covenants. They ache for a restoration. They ache for a dealing with sin that only the Christ will bring. And from Genesis 3.15 on, it is longing for him who will fulfill it. And Christ, as we'll see in a number of weeks, Christ himself is called the new covenant. The new covenant isn't isn't something written on paper. It's a person that Mm -hmm. comes. And it's through the new covenant that all the rest find their legs, that all the rest have staying power because of the blood of the new covenant. And so, yeah, he is the end point, the telos. Well, I had another question about God's redemptive plan, but I feel like we just kind of <laughs> accomplished that. I was going to ask you to away. flesh it out a little bit. No, I mean, it's perfect. You know, we talked about this idea of the Noahic covenant kind of being the foundation. And as you yeah. kind of alluded to this week, we have Abrahamic covenant coming in and sort of 
building upon that and we're starting to get little glimpses because we know the rest of the story. We're getting glimpses of how that plan is going to work its way out. And I think it's so interesting to to be able to look at this and say, yes, as you just said a moment ago, Abraham was not expecting a crucified Messiah to be the means by which global blessing would happen. Mm -hmm. But we're able to now look at that and see how that fits in. Not that that changes the promise, Mm -hmm. but that's how it would be fulfilled, you know, and how different parts of that happen, you know, they're promised a land. They go into the land for a bit, and then they leave the land for a mm-hmm. bit, and then they come back in the land for a bit. But God's promise to him through the covenant was they would have the land. And I love how you connected that on Sunday to the idea of the kingdom that is going to come, this this kingdom that is coming that needs a physical land. It needs a people group to be able to be reigned over. It all makes sense when we're able to look back from that perspective. Let me give a big spoiler and put all the pieces together. <laughs> you know, there is this foundation, a location, the population, and then this promise of a global benediction. What comes next is a preservation of that people with the Mosaic law. God is going to come in and say, I'm going to have to hem you in so that this blessing can come through you. Because left to yourself, you're going to uh, mix with every other nation. You're going to be pulled away into idolatry. And so the law comes in to preserve them, to preserve them along. Then comes the priestly covenant, which is representation. So now we're going to have an eternal Mm. representation for people toward a holy God forever and ever. Then comes the Davidic covenant. Now we have jurisdiction for the king. And he comes down and he this is going to be his kingdom, right? right? And then we have the new covenant, which is sanctification. Finally, we have this dealing with sin. And it's all put together. But how can you have the sanctification? How can you have the jurisdiction if you don't have a foundation? If yeah. you don't have a people? Doesn't if you don't sense. have a population? It all fits together beautifully. It's almost like there's one author creating this wonderful creation project, this restoration project, after we burned it to the ground. Yeah, I mean, it all flows together, and I think it's helpful to be able to think of it that way, and now each week we, again, we go back to each, okay, now let's look at the next building block. Okay, how does that fit in the big picture again? And and that's why I love the way you've kind of formatted this this series, you know, with, I'm going to ask the same three questions every week, mm-hmm. because it's important to keep our minds going back to the big picture, then zoom back into the, 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 the nitty-gritty and the, yeah. the building pieces, yeah. right? I'd be remiss if we didn't hit on a little bit of uh, implication of what, what we can do about this. You did talk about this on Sunday. Josiah, you left us with two considerations why this covenant matters to us now. We've talked about that probably a lot already this this session, but first, it reminds us that there is salvation for the world. I think that's an important reminder for all of us, obviously. And it also prompts intercession for Israel. And I guess where I want to end us today, Josiah, is just taking that really practically. What are some things that we can actually be doing this week inspired by these reminders Mm -hmm. yeah i don't want to get too complicated here i think they're pretty straightforward i want to be filled with gratitude for the global blessing that's been Mm -hmm. given from the lord especially as you talked about earlier how we see in abraham isaac and jacob this fumbling and stumbling and doubting and rebelling and i can relate to that in my own life it's good for me then to go back to remembering this global blessing that salvation is available not just to special people to good people to pious people to the world it's offered yeah including the abrahams of the world including the stumbling bumbling fools like me yeah and so just to be reminded that what an amazing act of grace god didn't have to do that he didn't have to at all he could have just taken noah and said this is it I'm done. Everyone else is going to blow it. I'm just going to stick with no one in his family. But he didn't. He made it global. Um, And so just to be in awe of that and allow that awe and that appreciation to renew your fascination with the gospel that saved you and hopefully fuel the evangelism, the sharing of that gospel with 
people of the world who don't yet know it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is where I wanted to kind of take us is just be in awe of this, this global undeserved blessing yeah. that God has brought into a world that actually left to ourselves hates him. And then finally, the intercession for Israel. Again, it comes back to this idea. Sometimes in the church, we, we think that God is done with Israel. And Paul has some very strong words about that in Romans chapter 11. May mm-hmm. it never be. Yeah. It cannot be. And whether we understand that or not, whether that offends us or not, because we think that they've blown it too much, whatever the case may be, sometimes, as we've said often, our understanding is optional. This is what he said. And so just pray about it. God has said, these are my people. They are under a partial hardening right now, a judgment because of their rejection. Pray for the softening of their heart. I don't know how that's all going to fit together in the end. You may not know how that's all going to fit together again. That's beside the point. Yeah, we don't you know, need to. Yeah, just, just pray for them. These are his chosen people, the people through whom which I've received salvation because the Messiah came through them. So at the very least, I can be somewhat grateful for Israel of old. So again, it's just this to not forget. I just wanted to put Israel before our face again as a congregation because often in the church today, we forget them and we think we are now the people of God and we are the people of God. But don't forget about Israel because God certainly hasn't. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this and thinking about the the series on Colossians a few months ago now, just because I was rereading through it and how we opened with Colossians 1 and we see Paul kind of going through this please and thank you sort of thing. You know, thank you, God, for all these things. Now here's my request, my please mm-hmm. prayers and how that seems to kind of be his model. You know, even Philippians 4, it's kind of that same idea, you know, present your requests with thanksgiving. And I feel like this is reminding me of that same kind of thing, you know, be grateful for what God has given us through these promises to made to other people through the, the the gift of salvation that it is. And because of that, now present our requests. And one of those requests should be a prayer for Israel, should be a prayer for the future, should be a prayer for our nation, for the world, for what is to come. Those who do not know that that salvation is available to them. Amen. And so it's that same kind of, that format. I mean, it's all throughout scripture. Yeah. So easy application, I think, probably for most biblical texts. If you're wondering what to do about something or how something applies to you, there's probably something you can be grateful for in it, and there's probably something you can be praying for. for Totally, yeah. (laughs) Well, Josiah, thank you again for the time today, and uh, listener, I hope this has been an encouraging and a thought-provoking conversation, and until next time, go with grace and peace. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.